Let's just start off with a tune. What do you say? I touch your lips and all at once the sparks go flying. Those devil lips that know so well the art of lying. And though I see the danger, still the flame grows higher. I know I must surrender to your kiss of fire. Just like a torch, you set the soul within me burning. I must go on along this road of no returning. And though it burns me and it turns me into ashes, my whole world crashes without your kiss of fire. I can't resist you. What good is there in trying? Denying you're all that I desire Since first I kissed you My heart was yours completely If I'm a slave Then it's a slave I want to be Don't pity me Don't pity me Give me your lips The lips you only let me borrow Love me tonight And let the devil take tomorrow Oh, it consumes me, oh, I kiss a fire. Georgia Gibbs with the kiss of Biden. Since first I kissed you, my heart was yours completely. If I'm a slave, then it's a slave I want to be. Don't pity me, don't pity me. Give me your lips and lips you only let me borrow. Love me tonight and let the devil take tomorrow. I know that I must have your kiss, although it dooms me, though it consumes me. Whoa. Georgia Gibbs, kiss of Biden, kiss of fire, of course. Now, who is she? Georgia Gibbs. I'm glad you asked. She was a singer, obviously. <laughs> uh, and you know what her real name was? Frida Lipschitz. <laughs> but you can't well, say no, kiss be- of fire from Frida Lipschitz because <laughs> it's a mixed it metaphor. <laughs> Me too has subpoenaed Biden's emojis. The court order looks for face-throwing kiss, kissy or duck face, kissy face, eyes closed and open, smiling face with hard eyes, winky face, smiley face, licking lips, winky face with stuck-out tongue, happy, huggy face with hands, kissing cat face and kissing cat face with closed eyes, smiley face with open mouth and cold sweat, grinning face with big eyes, beaming face with smiley eyes, smirking face, drooling face, exploding head face, woman getting face massage, Ooh. And Colbert, or face with one raised eyebrow face. So. All right, uh, this just in. Joe Biden has been sentenced to community service as a Walmart greeter. <laughs> oh, that's asking for trouble. I didn't think that primate grooming defense was going to work anyhow, you know. Not to nitpick. I'd rather get a hug from Joe than a what you got there from Trump. <laughs> Ooh. Oh. I know. Uh, in a related story, Jesus is cited for laying on of hands. 
Herman Cain appointed to the Godfather's pizza seat on the Federal Reserve Board. A study found that there may be no safe amount of alcohol consumption. It's not expected to stop research, however. You know, people drinking. (laughs) All right. A poor diet is a bigger health problem than smoking or lack of exercise. And the number one offender of diet is kale. (laughs) Followed by number two, quinoa. uh, Followed by avocado toast, almond so-called milk. Chia seeds, especially those grown on a chia pet, and Ezekiel bread, which is baked with all the above ingredients. So. Uh, the Bezos uh, divorce is final, leaving only one question Is Mackenzie dating? The Mormon Church is going to allow children of LGBTQ parents to be baptized. So that comes to LDS LGBTQ. <laughs> and if they become doctors, LDS LGBTQMD. And so on. That's a mouthful. It is. Uh, Donald uh, Coyote tilts at windmills. <laughs> huh? Take some education to understand some of these. <laughs> uh, the Chinese woman at Mar-a-Lago is actually looking for the buffet, which is the <laughs> first thing they look for when they get over here. Uh, the Israeli satellite plops onto the moon with an oi. <laughs> You could hear it from here, honestly. When it leaves, it'll be the same thing. Going up or... Uh, Trump confirms he was actually talking about the oranges of the Mueller report. (laughs) Apparently he got a hold of a copy and there were oranges in it. That's his favorite color. Yeah, Yeah, good point. And uh, his father was born in Germany back when the Bronx was part of Germany. So a lot of people don't remember those days. Uh, the Trump administration is going to shift responsibility for food safety inspections and hog plants to the hogs. Now, finally, a good idea, because four legs good, two legs bad. <laughs> Napoleon, then, from, you know, Napoleon, the head pig, mm-hmm. animal farm. He will overthrow Trump, I predict. <laughs> Pretty much the same agenda. But it's hard to write executive orders with a pig's foot, I'll tell you that. With a little. <laughs> but they'll convey it one way or another. Projecting, Trump calls Puerto Rican leaders incompetent and corrupt. Wait a second. Let me do that again. Projecting, uh, Trump calls Puerto Rican leaders incompetent and corrupt. Puerto Rican leaders call Trump. Hijo de puta. Motherfucker. Okay. <laughs> I'll fix it in the mix. It'll be just like, like that. Yeah. Uh, where was it? Oh, and uh, in all the good news that isn't. The USDA ends parasite testing on kittens. And if you've ever seen a picture of a kitten, here they are. Are they being tested? Free of parasite testing. Oh, they're free of parasites. That's all the news that isn't. Uh, Oh, here's some uh, in all the news that isn't news. Florida couple shares vows in redneck wedding. Why does that even make the news? How uncommon is that? A man loses $1.3 million lawsuit claiming boss bullied him by farting. What? <laughs> yeah, he says his boss bullied him by farting around him on purpose. Purposeful. Oh, purposeful farting. farting. Yeah. Hmm. Or maybe it wasn't purposeful. He just shouldn't be in the news. Uh, Japan just shot a copper cannonball at an asteroid. This is yes. my life. That's how I feel my life is like this. So I relate to this. You know, I feel like I'm shooting copper cannonballs at asteroids. <laughs> you know, it's more metaphorical. 
in the Chiron of the Week. Chiron, is that what it's called? Yeah. The Chiron of the Week. This is the one, a beauty. Uh, It's uh, Trump cuts U.S. aid to three Mexican countries. There it is. Did you know there are three Mexican countries? Trump cuts Fox. Fox always wins this battle. And that's all. Chiron. And that's all three of them right there pictured. Yeah. This you got to like billionaire Safra's uh, 1,000-foot London tulip gets green light. Billionaire Joseph Safra won initial approval to build a 305-meter, 1,000-foot tower in the shape of a tulip next to a skyscraper in London's financial district. But, ladies and gentlemen, it is not the shape of a tulip. (laughs) It is the shape of a dildo. So we have the Statue of Liberty. It's only fair after Brexit that I think England would have a dildo as its <laughs> symbol. There it is. Can you imagine how embarrassing even to be? Even for the Eng- in, British. Even in, yes, even in the financial district. Uh, Matt Gatz, you know, the guy in uh, Congress, he's like 21 years old, and he's a loudmouth, and he's the one who told Michael Cohen his wife was going to leave him. You know, he's on in the House, that House committee. Oh, yeah. okay. Yakety, yakety, yak. Well, he said... Uh, Transgender people could, ups- if, if, if you gave them all legal rights, it could upset the legal system by using grants set aside for women and minority-owned businesses. Uh, what happened, uh, Gatz asks, when sex is defined as gender identity and gender identity is terribly vague, will all sex-based distinctions be erased? And then he went on further to say, Consider this possibility if President Trump were to say, I am now the first female president. Who would, who would celebrate that? Would those who support the legislation think that's a good thing, or would they be dismayed? Okay, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of things to consider there. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it would, either way. I can't vote either way on that one. Good thing or be dismayed. Yeah, being dismayed. Being yeah. dismayed, I think, is a proper response. We're talking. Uh, we're calling his personal phone right now. You may have a glance answering machine. In captivity. Hello? Benjamin, is that you? Yes, it is. Sorry, I was just going to my mom, and you know how moms can be. You're what? I said I was just getting off the phone with my mom, and you know how oh, moms oh, 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 can I was be. Just getting off the phone with your mouth, and I thought, what? No, 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 no. <laughs> Hold on a second. I'm just I'm popping my headset in. Hold on. Go ahead. Go ahead. I hope you didn't hang up on your mom. This is not worth that. Okay, here I am. All right. Benjamin Dreyer has joined us. Dreyer's English is the book. Uh, Benjamin Dreyer is the copy chief of Random House, and this is an utterly correct guide to clarity and style. Is, is it correct to say utterly correct? Um, I'm quite keen on adverbs, and I know that so many people seem to have a grudge against them, so mm-hmm. it makes me sort of want to use them as frequently as I can. Yeah, but a thing's either correct or it isn't. Well, it wouldn't be utterly or mildly correct. Um, I like to emphasize things. I know that there are absolutes and that there are adjectives that are deemed to be um, uh, beyond being compared, but um, if I can't have fun with words, then what's the point of using them? Right, but isn't that what authors say to you when you're, when you're editing uh, those, those, those types of words out of their manuscript? Well, um, not really, because if I'm paying proper attention to uh, an author and what the author is trying to get across on the page, mm-hmm. um, I think that I find myself not going out of my way to attempt to correct authors out of their own voice. Ah. Does being a copy chief at Random House, is that, is that like a great sense of power or just mild? 
Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it a great sense of power. What I do recognize about being the copy chief of Random House, and I, I'm, I'm quite honored by it, is that I've taken on responsibilities for making sure that books come out well that uh, is part of a tradition that stretches all the way back to uh, you know Bennett Cerf and Donald Klopfer yeah. uh, founding Random House nearly 100 years ago. Yeah. So um, it, it, it doesn't make me feel powerful. It makes me feel um, proud. Yes, and you're entitled to the Bennett Cerf seat on uh, uh, What's My Line. I do like to think about an era in which a book publisher was a television celebrity. Yeah, um, that was that was a nice world back then. Yeah, he was he popped up all over the place, not just the hit show. Uh, let me start right in here. Is it is it correct to end a sentence with any more any more? Um, sure. Um, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Okay, but you know, I, I used to hear it all the time, and it makes me think of home, for example, which is not Kansas; it's Wisconsin, but. You know, and people just and it had no place in the sentence to speak of, but it's just a way of of, of I don't know of relating to the person you're speaking to. Like they there's don't a, they, they don't make them like mid, that anymore. There's a, there's a midwestern uh, use of the word anymore in a uh, in in the way that I think that you're talking about in a in a positive sense as opposed to modifying a negative that I heard all the time when I was living in, uh, in, in Evanston and in Chicago, oh, hmm. and I, it always caught my ear because it was something as an Easterner that I, I would never think to, that I would never think to say, but I, I do recognize it as a, um, as, a, as a language habit. Yeah. There are some things that Easterners say that we would never think to say. Uh, probably many things that Easterners say that you would never think to say. Yeah. And if those things turn up in a manuscript now, it's it's okay if your your character happens to be from the East or the Midwest to say those things, right? Um, again, I mean, it depends what kind of manuscript we're talking about mm-hmm. and who the writer is and what the writer is attempting to convey. I mean, to be sure, I will try to keep my ears open for a language that seems to me to be uh, regionally inappropriate, or a character, if we're talking about a novel, or um, or far more often, I would say, anachronistic. Um, there are many opportunities to help an author um, away from using words that are not right for the era in which a book is set. Yeah. Um, you'd be amazed at, at how frequently lately I'm running into uh, CD players popping up in, in manuscripts set in the... Um, in the nineteen in the early nineteen seventies. Okay, and when did they come on the scene? Um, I'm going to say only <laughs> based on my recollection of buying my own first CD player, and I was never the first to buy anything. But as I recall, I got my first CD player in 1986 or 1987. All right, so that was inappropriate for that to be in there. Yeah. So we should have been talking cassettes. Cassette players. Yes, cassette player, or of course, uh, most of us were still listening to what we would now call vinyl, but in those days you would simply call a record. Yeah. What about unconventional grammar or usage uh, and purposeful misspellings? Do those have to go, or can you make a case for them if you're an author? Um, if, if you can pull that sort of thing off, if you have the, the, the virtuosity to do that, then... Um, <laughs> then I would encourage you to do that. I mean, I'm thinking right now, for instance, of 
uh, George Saunders writing this wonderful little sort of fable called Fox 8, yes. which is written from the perspective of Fox, who's taught himself to, to, to speak, and, right. and as he's conveying it to you, write English by listening to human beings. And, of course, uh, he, he, puts things down on the, uh, he puts things down in the text uh, by his own sense of how things are spelled. And it's, it's quite brilliantly done. It's also, I think, worth pointing out that it's also on the short side. Um, that sort of thing can get tiring. Yeah. Um, and if, unless you're George Saunders or unless you're, for instance, um, Russell Hoban, if you've ever read this, this amazing uh, post-apocalyptic novel he wrote uh, decades ago called, um, called Ridley Walker, yeah. um, uh, unless you're really good at that, I, I, would, I would urge you uh, away from it. I, I have a particular distaste for writers uh, attempting to convey people's dialects and accents with endless uses of phonetic spelling, which um, can come off as condescending, it can come off as classist, and when you really push your luck, uh, it, can come up as, uh, it can come off as straight-up racist. Okay, so somebody comes in your office and throws, an unknown writer, let's say, and throws down a manuscript called Huckleberry Finn on your desk. Yes. What do you do? <laughs> Well, the first thing is that if you're a copy editor, if you're me and you're the cop chief, you pick up the phone and you call the book's actual editor and you have a chat with the editor about what the author's, uh, what we think the author's intentions are, and and you recognize that the book's actual editor and its author has been working through it draft by draft by draft, probably for a few years, and your job as the copy editor is not to say, Oh, I completely disagree with how you've written this book. Um, that's not a copy editor's business. No, uh, a copy editor's business is to support the manuscript uh, oh. that that you've been handed. And if I'm given Huckleberry Finn as a as a manuscript, I'm going to immediately be able to see what Twain has done, and I recognize then what my job is. And my job is to make it clear. My job is to. Uh, to, to query the author on issues of consistency of presentation and, and all those other things that, uh, that, that copy editors do. Yeah. Uh, I also think that as a copy editor, I, I, can, I can see genius when it's put in front of me. Ah. What if you're proofreading it and that comes to you? What do you just Well, as the, proofreader, as the proofreader, you recognize that all of the major battles have been fought, oh. and it's, it's particularly <laughs> not your job to start rethinking things. Yeah. Um, you certainly, as a proofreader, are, are, are backing up the, the author and the copy editor in issues of, uh, particularly in issues of inconsistency, which is, is the thing that is going to make it to typeset pages. Because, you know, a copy editor's eyes are excellent, but they're not perfect. Yeah. And uh, you're there as the proofreader simply to, to, to really put the finishing touches on the, uh, uh, on the text make sure that it's as perfect as it can be yeah so it's just technical in that in that area exactly. but do, do you never argue uh with an author i don't argue is the wrong word i'm sorry but you never posit to an author that this isn't working and this is this is may not be considered appropriate never would um, do that. as a as a coffee editor phrase by phrase sentence by sentence um it is my job to point out to an author if something is 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 awkward or might even be deemed to be um, offensive, not not on not on purpose, but accidentally, uh, 
any number of other things uh, that aren't right, and it, 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 it does vary from textually this isn't working to textually I think you might be doing something I might urge you not to do. Yeah. And, and the author, of course, has the, uh, has the option to accept your questions or your criticism um, or, or reject it, and, and that's, the, that's the dialogue. And ultimately, it is the author's book, and uh, it's the author's name that's going on it, not the copy editor's name. Right. If it's offensive on purpose, you can't touch it, right? Um, I would have a conversation with the book's editor, and, and the decision would be made. And it's not, it's not my decision as, as copy editor to make these sorts of decisions. Yeah. What about if you're running an author who's who's actually making up his own? Well, I guess we already covered this a little bit with George Saunders, but making up his own language. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, books set in the future or set in alien worlds, and the author has gone to the trouble of actually inventing a, a language. How does a copy editor deal with that, or or not? You 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 just have to keep up with it. You have to uh, hope that you can figure out what the author is doing. You you might find yourself as the copy editor in this book uh, uh, filled with uh, endless amounts of futuristic diction, saying, "I recognize that you are attempting to do something. I simply can't follow it. Mm-hmm. And is, is this what you want to do in this moment for your reader?" And and again, it, it goes back to the author saying. You know, there's probably a way I can I can I can uh, eat my cake and have it too with this strange word, but I can make it a little bit clearer to the reader. Or the author can say, "No, I'm actually reveling in this particular obscurity, and I'm going to stick with it." Yeah. Now, us us regular people who attempt to write and uh, have for years, that's really this book is is for them as as, as much as anybody, or, or perhaps foremost, correct? Yeah. So I. I, I, th- I interviewed Kurt Vonnegut one time, and I uh, said, you know, what's the secret to your writing? And he, and he said, why do you write? One of those questions. He said, well, it's to, to feed my goddamn family. That was a great answer. Yeah. And, and then uh, I, I said, well, what about, are there any tips you would give writers? He said, uh, uh, never use semicolons. He said, all semicolons prove is that you went to college. Vonnegut has said a uh, Vonnegut said a couple of things about semicolons, yeah. and and with all respect to Vonnegut, I think um, I think his weird little stance on the semicolon is um, what's the word silly. I think weird is good enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. Stop him. God, I thought it was great. I thought, you know, I'm never <laughs> going to use a semicolon again because even though I went to college, I don't want to beat a dead horse. You know. Well, I, I don't. I don't want to set writers uh, who are dead against each other <laughs> if they if they if they never met each other um, and and had no cognizance of each other. But um, as I like to say, the only thing I think that you need to know about semicolons is that Shirley Jackson loved them and uh, used them. Yeah. And um, and 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 Ms. Jackson is 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 my favorite writer in the English language, mm-hmm. and and I'm happy to take my cues. From her enthusiastic use of semicolons, and apparently she went to college. And apparently she went to college. <laughs> uh, okay, so things that come when I started writing as a kid or whatever, I, I uh, tried to sound. I tried. To, I was trying to do humor, obviously, and I read all the humorous Thurber, and, you know. And uh, but then I, I tried when writing. I tried to sound British in my approach. 
This is probably a common thing, isn't it, in authors? Because, you know, I mean, whatever else you can say about them, Brexit and everything, uh, they they know how to speak, and they seem to think before they speak, and they seem to phrase things in such a way that, that, that the, the mere phrasing of them is amusing, and what I was trying to do. Is this is this a problem for a, a lot of uh, beginning authors, let's say? I think that the best thing an author can do, I think the best thing that authors can do is, is attempt to sound like themselves. Right. Um, and, and certainly we are going to, we are going to internalize the writers that we love, and we may consciously or unconsciously find ourselves uh, imitating them. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately the person you want to write like is you. Uh, it took me a long time working on my own book to, uh, to figure out what my voice was supposed to be. I wrote tens of thousands of words and threw them out because, um, because I didn't like them. And if I didn't like writing them, I didn't think anybody was going to like reading them. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you, if you want to, uh, you know, if, if your models are uh, Dickens and Thackeray and Stella Gibbons, um, then you're going to find yourself writing like Dickens and Thackeray and Stella Gibbons. If, you're, if your models are Edith Wharton or Hemingway or Fitzgerald, you may find yourself uh, writing like them. But, but ultimately, I, I think the goal is to not sound like you're writing a pastiche of somebody else's writing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, everything that you've ever read is, is going to be fuel and ammunition, uh, if you're a writer, for everything you're ever going to write. Yeah. Oh, and if you're a painter, you want to paint, you start by copying paintings. Yeah. But hopefully you get beyond that. Yeah. Or you you're, never gonna, you're never going to be the first writer who ever wrote anything. Yeah. Uh, when I, I try to write humor, it's succinct humor. You know, I, I, I was reading S.J. Perlman, and that can really kill you off right in a hurry. Um, reading people who are really, 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 really good at what they do mm-hmm. um, uh, can be a little daunting. Yeah. <laughs> Daunting is a good word. I like that, too. Um, let's see here now. What about spelling? Uh, this is kind of a mixed thing. There's so much here. I wrote in every cover of this book and on the fly leaves, and, there, and it's all covered now, and I can't read any of it that I wrote. But uh, uh, some things in, in literature, why do you have to spell numbers? So that's a minor thing, but it's, it's bothersome. Oh, well, there's a, you know, there, are, there are sort of guidelines for, for how to express numbers on the page that vary from uh, that vary from work to work, uh, also that vary by uh, venue. Uh, a print magazine or a newspaper is apt to favor the rule that all numbers, let's say over nine, should be expressed as numerals because because they're pressed for space, okay. um, and and so they want to use as little space as possible. So they're going to. You know, it's going to be one. It's it's going to be one one instead of writing out E L E V E N. I find that on the page you want to use words because they are friendlier to the eye. They're more human. They're more humane. Um, but if you're writing a book, if you're writing a business book um, that's going to be filled with statistics and dollar amounts, then that overwhelming amount of uh, of, of, of numbers is going to lead you to to, to using uh, to using numerals. It, it, it's a thing copy editors are always having to figure out on the page, and it can get a little sort of complicated by issues of frequency and proximity. 
but it's, it's just something that you, you figure out. And again, you're trying to serve the, uh, you're trying to serve the book and, and, and the clarity. And of course, if a book is endlessly about dollar amounts, it's easier on the eye and on the brain to see them expressed as, 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 as numbers, as numerals. Um, and if you're just, you know, talking where somebody makes a passing reference to, I paid $55, uh, for dinner, then you write it out in words because they're words. Right. And if you say 65 in words, it sounds like you're emphasizing how much you paid for dinner. Yeah. That could be a good thing. Has blogging and Twittering and texting ruined a lot of people's hopes of, of ever being writers? Um, I find that, I mean, as best I can tell, I mean, I don't, I don't read everything. And mm-hmm. much of what I read professionally is what's put in front of me, the manuscripts that are intended ultimately to find themselves in, in book form. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and of course I read... Uh, news articles and such, I, I find that the level of writing these days is, is, is quite high. Of course, I'm seeking out good writing to read. Um, I think people write beautifully. Um, I think that Twitter is, it speaks its own language. And if you're, if you're going to be on Twitter, you're going to learn how to speak Twitterese. Um, I don't think that online writing infects, um, in, 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 infects publishable prose. As far as Blogging is concerned, sure. Every now and then I encounter somebody puts a blog post in front of me, not their own, but somebody else's. And I think, well, this is just terrible writing. Um, But there's always been terrible writers. It's just that these terrible writers haven't always had a public platform. Well, now they do. And, you know, more power to them. Uh, it just, I was thinking when my daughter started writing in school, she started writing things, and they were pretty funny little essays and things. But she put in uh, text words as she was writing, in, inadvertently, without even thinking about it. And there's, there's sort of that effect, I think. You, said, you, you can't really use text abbreviations in a piece of writing, but maybe it's not a larger problem than that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't say I don't have a lot of yeah. um, I don't have a lot of current experience right now with English as it's being thought or English is being written by very young people and how it's being corrected. So I can't really speak to that, but I can certainly remember back to being in fifth, sixth, and seventh grade myself. And, um, you know, when you're a kid, you have your writing challenges and you have things that you need to learn to do better. So it's just the difference between the 1960s and now you have different things you need to be taught to do better. Okay. Would you uh, really have told Norman Mailer that he was dangling his modifier? Oh, you mean the, the famous first line of Harless Ghost? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think about that. I was, as I say in the book, I was the proofreader um, of Harless Ghost, and I do not have any recollection of whether or not I noticed that the first, uh, that the first sentence of the book was a dangler. Um, if I if I had noticed it, I certainly would have pointed out. Had I been his copy editor, um, I also would have pointed it out. Um, he declared at the time when it was pointed out publicly that the first sentence of the novel was a dangler that he liked it that way, and and, and that was a very I mean, but that, you know that was a perfectly noble thing for him to do rather than hang a copy editor out to dry. Um, <laughs> said this is the way I want it to be and end of, end of conversation and, um, and, and good for him for doing that yeah especially if he's actually in the room with you it's end of conversation yeah 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 
All right, now I, I feel I must have had this or even have it right now, but what is the subjunctive mood? Oh, the subjunctive mood is the means of expressing um, a sense of unreality. And it has to do generally with the juxtaposition of the word if and the word that is either going to be was or were. And it, it's a very puzzling thing. And if you're, if you're somebody like me who didn't really have much education in grammar to speak of, um, and you finally encounter the term subjunctive as a, as a professional and you need to wrestle with it, um, you find yourself uh, encountering sentences that, uh, that include a phrase that is either if I was or if I were and trying to figure out which one you're supposed to be using. Um, the, the sort of short version I, I, I use for that or the quick solution as I try to figure it out is that if, if I could insert into that sentence because I'm simply talking about alternatives between something that is or something that is not, I will use the word was. If we are speaking of something where we're not speaking of something that is simply true or not true, but something that is possible or completely impossible, I would lean more toward the use of the subjunctive and the use of the word were. Um, one thing that you can always be reasonably certain of is that if you're seeing a sentence that includes a phrase that uh, begins as if I, you can always head for the were, um, and you'll you'll get away with it, and, mm. uh, and it'll sound right. Yeah, is it the same as the plus que parfait in French? Oh, you know, my my, my French is that of a um, my French is that of a not particularly well educated child, so I'm not going to I'm not <laughs> going to venture into French. Not going to go there. Huh? But that's the future perfect or something, isn't it? Or imperfect yeah whatever the future the, the, is. the, the thing that i always uh, like to say about grammar is that i don't like grammar very much yeah um I, I i have as much grammar in my head and in my textbooks as i need to do my job mm. um but keeping the keeping the the varying bits of terminology of grammar in my head is, is not necessary for what i'm doing so I, I i i try to crowd my head with other things that are more necessary so you're, you're not really doing grammar in your job you're doing style um, I, I, I am doing grammar, but only in the sense of making sure that it works, um, not not necessarily being able to to haul out the terminology that goes with it. So if I'm puzzled by a particular phrase, I, I know how to go do my research to find out what the phrase is supposed to be. But um, don't ask me what the future conditional tense of something <laughs> is, because I can't remember and I don't need to know that. Yeah. I do know that when I, when I became a teacher, you have to go to teacher training or whatever it is, something in graduate school it was called that. And they had, at that time, they had transformational grammar. And oh, gosh. I have no idea what it was then or now. <laughs> I never used it. I did, you know, I didn't make my students ever, and I taught English, more or less. But we didn't transform any grammar in that except in the worst grammar, perhaps. Yeah. I don't know what that was. It was. It was a, at the time. It was a fad. I think transformational grammar uh, sounds threatening. In as much, yes or no? Oh, it is. Not, yeah, I mean, then sure. I, I'm, I I could probably go searching through my own writing and find how many times I've used the word "in as much." Yeah, because that's. The, I think that's the first word I started with in my essays when I discovered. I tried to write for the teacher, you know, and impress them. I began with "in as much," you know. Uh, and it got a good grade, so I thought. But I didn't want to overuse it because, uh, you know. 
I mean, there are, there are all these little ticks that we use in our writing to, to, to emphasize points or to, to haul them, haul out these phrases uh, for, for transitions. And the trick, I think, is to go back and look to writing and see how many times you're using them and prune them. Um, I'm a, I'm a big I'm a big user of that said and and I know that I do it and I know that I write it and I let myself write it, uh, but once I finish doing my writing and I go back and I look at what I'm uh, look at what I've written, um, I'm going to start crossing them out. Uh-huh. That, does it inhibit your writing at all to to know as much as you do about writing? <laughs> I mean, are you think because sometimes I do it when trying to just write a joke or something about that, and I sort of know too much about how this is going to end or how to work or what to do to make this into something that's somewhat humorous and it kind of inhibits the writing of it i try not to i try not to look over my own shoulder when i'm writing uh because if you do that over much you're you're going to quickly become paralyzed um (laughs) you're you're so critical and you're so self-conscious of what you're doing that you're simply going to just grind to a halt and nothing's going to get done um, I am, of course, aware of what I'm doing as I'm writing. I don't go into a trance and suddenly find out that two hours have passed and I've written a whole lot of sentences. Um, but I do just, when I'm writing, let myself do what I'm doing and um, and then go back and, and, and fix it later. I do have uh, one complaint with uh, Random House style. It's just a, well, it's not a big one. It's big to me, but E.E. E. Cummings. Uh, one of my favorites. Uh-huh. I can't believe that it's uh, E period space E period space Cummings with capital E's uh-huh. and capital C. Why is that well, right? It, it should well, be small uh, letters, uh, or maybe uh, run it all together. E Cummings. Um, well, no, because that's his name. Yeah. Um, and and the the fiction that he that he always spelled his name all lowercase, and the and the, the worst fiction that that was legally his name, um, well, that's what it is. It's a fiction. Um, as as far as the style of how to um, how to present a name, uh, I mean that's simply style, and that's that's a fairly common thing. If you're writing about H. L. Mencken, the, the, the well, there are two ways to do it. Either you write H. Period space L. Period space Mencken. Or you write H period L period space Mencken. I think that the former version is more attractive on the page, so that's the way that that we do it. Hmm. What did Mencken think? Um, I probably think that Mencken didn't really much care. Yeah, he was thinking about a lot. So yeah, he was always thinking about. A lot. Yeah, uh, have you got a little time yet? I just want to go through a little bit of the miscellany with you. Sure. Is your mother going to call you back or? No, 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 no. We're good. You're done. You go that. Okay. You're a good boy. Yeah. Um, each other. Strictly yeah. differentiating between each other in reference to something occurring between two people, as in Johnny and I like each other, and one another for three or more. Is that a hard and fast rule? Um, it's not a hard fast rule, and there's really nothing that mandates it. I mean, you could say there's very little that mandates anything, but um, just focusing on this particular thing. I find it neater to observe the rule because I like things to be neat. And (laughs) what happens is that you will find, for instance, in copy editing, that authors will simply go back and forth and back and forth with no particular thought. And if 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 they're presenting a scene between two people and they've used the phrase each other, 
they may decide the next time around simply to vary it to use one another. And and I just find that irksome. So I will go in and, to, to my own satisfaction, straighten it out. Um, authors will, as a rule, not object. They, they tend to also appreciate that you have a sense of tidying them up. Um, so there's usually not much uh, there's usually not much problem there. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Brits are less observant of that difference, but they have their own ticks and tricks and things they like to do more and things yeah. they like to do less. Yeah. Uh, it came up just the other day. Uh, I got engaged in a conversation about the difference between farther and further, and, and we have a, a differentiation that we tend to observe in American English to use farther, farther for a sense of literal distance and right. to use further for more sort of metaphorical concepts. Right. Um, which is fine insofar as it goes. Um, <laughs> Brits tend to use the word further exclusively, so they don't have to deal with that problem. Oh, yeah. See, they're smart. They're smarter than we are. I mean, it's so that's exactly because I get corrected all the time because I, I don't know which one to pick when I'm, you know. Well, they also use, uh, they also, uh, use while and while to mean two different things. Oh. So, um, yeah, well, that's so, a downer. So, so, so they've got their own. They've got their own uh, yeah. uh, different, uh, minute differentiations of style. Yeah, that's a shortcoming. I have to say, but yeah. I notice in a lot of this, it's uh, I like when you, you're speaking, saying I like things neat, uh, or that's irksome to me. It's 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 not all about you, really, is it? In this well, in this copy editing, cop- is it what you copy like? Edit- copy editing is as in its own way is as subjective as writing. Right. And uh, all I can do as copy editor is bring my own taste and my own sense of judgment and my own sense of what works and what doesn't mm-hmm. to the page and and offer advice. Sure. And the author will either appreciate the advice or, or not appreciate the advice and um, you know and, and, and not to talk in circles, not not to beg the question, but um, if the things that I'm doing as a copy editor are going over well with the writers that I'm copy editing, then that rather suggests that I've made good decisions. Yes. Uh, that, that makes total sense to me. Uh, no. But you, you must run into authors who don't like being tidied up. Um, Never? I, I, find that, I find that, and I'm, I'm not speaking only of, of the work that I do, but mm-hmm. of the work that you know, all the copy editors who work for our department um, if the if the copy editor is attentive and adept and offers uh, sensible advice, then the author will be responsive to it. Um, I, I don't think that any author uh, should be uh, sh- should accept one hundred percent of uh, of what a copy editor uh, offers. Yeah. I certainly know that as as as, as the writer of a book. Um, I was brilliantly copy edited, but there were times I was quite happy to say, I appreciate your suggestion, but no. But go um, fish. I think that a writer who's going to walk into the copy editing process uh, with, a, with a great big chip on the shoulder and, and, and to, to, to not be open to good copy editing, mm-hmm. I, think that's a flaw in a, I think that's a flaw in a writer. Yeah. Um, and uh, nobody, no writer is perfect, and I have in my, in my life copy edited some brilliant writers, and, and they are very open to the process. They, they enjoy it as, as, as well they ought, because nobody's ever going to read you as carefully as your copy editor. Nobody is ever, ever going to read you as carefully as your copy editor.
Maybe your mother. Um, you know, not even. <laughs> Can you appeal to a higher uh, authority? Is there a higher copy editor, a court of appeals on any of these things? Um, I mean, sometimes what will happen is that, let's say somebody in my department is working on a book and the copy editor has made uh, made a suggestion that, that really, as far as we're concerned, is the difference between right and wrong, and the author rejects so that we're both looking at this text and thinking, you're committing a mistake. I mean, you're making a mistake here. Um, you might go off and have a conversation with the book's editor and say, you know, what do you think? And do you think that if you step in and intercede, you might push this conversation a little bit more one way or the other? And, and that's happened every now and then. And, and, and sometimes you can, you can get a writer to... to, to change direction to, to, to uh, appreciate a piece of copy editing that the writer had initially rejected, and sometimes you can. You know, I only have one, it, I have one experience. Again, it's the writer's book. I have only one experience with this. I wrote, I wrote a few little books there, really nothing to speak of. But I was talking about my father being a Toastmaster at the Odd Fellows Lodge, you know. That's where I acquired my skills from, and I spelled it as two words, Odd and Fellows. And it came back with a circle that said, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was wrong, whatever. And it was actually one word, odd fellows. And I said, no, it was odd fellows. I remember it in my mind, seeing it on the building there. Uh, two words, odd and fellows, etched in stone, literally. And uh, and, and and so they, they kept it in. But then, then I eventually looked it up, and I was wrong. You know, and I've, I've felt bad about it ever since. Um, I'm sorry, and I, and I hope that I, I hope that's the wrong. Clearly, you carry it with you. So I, I recognize I recognize the wound. Uh, but the one good thing about proper nouns is that they transcend all notions of style and taste and house style and judgment, and they just are. Yeah. And you have to get them down on the page the way they exist. Yes, as my. My father transcended all those too. All right, let's, let's just see. Uh, if you only see one movie this year, uh, you can only watch a movie, ironically, so many times before you're watching it earnestly. Okay. Uh, if you only see one movie this year, that's uh, front-loading the word only. Uh, and copy editors hate that, do they? It depends. It, it depends what they're copy editing. I mean, if we are talking about dialogue uh all i would say natural speakers of the human language who are not actively employed as copy editors will put the word only as close to the front of a sentence as as, as they can get it so yes uh, a, a normal human being would say if you only see one movie this year let it be blah 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 movie whereas a copy editor might suggest that that should be if you see only one movie this mm -hmm. year because the word only should be sitting as close as possible to the thing that is being only. Um, <laughs> if, if 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 we're talking about dialogue uh, and and the placement of that a uh, placement of that word, I I would normally think to just leave it where it's sitting unless it is creating active confusion. Uh, if we are talking about sort of more straightforward narrative non-dialogue text, I will as a rule. Uh, my own rule, I will pick up that word and put it where I think it belongs. Okay. Uh, one thing that I do I do say in the book, and, yeah. and anybody who, who reads it or who works with me is free to accept, you know, my, my taste or not. Um, I, I think that speech is speech, and people talk the way they talk, and writing is 
is, is of course, quite related to it, but it is something different. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that there is something in, well, I'm just going to go ahead and use the word stilted. There is, there is something in slightly stilted, very carefully correct, uh, not carefully correct, very carefully constructed prose that I find on the page um, thrilling. And, um, <laughs> and, and I, I, think, I think it suits writing to be writing and not simply a, uh, a transcription of human speech onto the page. Yeah. So some, sometimes stilting, uh, stilting moments in writing thrill you? Is that what you're yeah. 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 Can you give me an example? I just sort of, uh, maybe it's hard to do off, off the top of your head, but. It, 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 is a, it, is, it is a little hard to do off the top of my head, but, okay. but I will say that, you know, when you add up things like the correct placement of only mm-hmm. and, and, and using the, 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 the lovely string of correct and different prepositions to make a number of phrases work in perfect parallel uh, juxtaposition with one another, I just, I just love that. It, 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 it kind of sings, it sings to me. Ah. Do we know why it would? Do that to you. <laughs> um, because, because I'm a because I'm a copy editor. <laughs> okay, now grass, you know, I know we shouldn't use. I mean, that, you know, there's no way that you could use that anymore, and that's a good thing. Although I would say that's for those of us of a of a certain age. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm old enough to have been faintly cognizant of the JFK assassination, and I remember that phrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the from the endless discussions of, of of how the assassination occurred and where it occurred and and who did it, um, I would say that if you put the phrase "grassy knoll" in front of somebody who is currently in their twenties and say, "Does this phrase mean anything to you?" Yeah, um, they might very well say no. I, I find that in my work entirely because all all my phrases are basically uh, from the early sixties at the at the latest. And uh, they go; uh, they don't make any impact whatsoever on the listener. All right. There, now, there's a world of difference between going into the water and going in the water. Uh, what is that world of difference? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're we're certainly all all more apt to say, "I, I, you know, I, I, I went in the building. I'm, I'm, I'm going in the store." Um, whereas I, I would the use of the word into to convey the movement from one place to another. Um, as far as uh, the difference between going in the water and going into the water is concerned, uh, going into the water entails starting on the beach and ending up mm. in the water itself, and going in the water entails being in the water and allowing oneself the bodily function that is usually accompanied by staring into the distance as if you're not doing the thing that you're doing. Yeah. However, if you're drowning, it's a moot point anyway. I would say so, yeah. Yeah. Um, similar to, there's a world difference between turning in to a driveway and turning into a driveway. Yes. One is, one is, one is, is, is hanging a right and finding oneself in a driveway, and the other one is being a human being, and then presto, changeo, you are a driveway. Yeah. <laughs> Which would be cool if you could do it. Sure, if you could pull that off. Now, if you love something passionately and vigorously, you love it no end. However, yeah. to love something to no end is a different situation. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that is simply that is a phrase that is, 
it, it, it's, a, it's an odd little construction in English, and you can honor it or you can not honor it, but um, uh, I, I, like to, I like to honor our odd little phrases in English. So, yes, if you, if you, if you love something hugely, uh, you, you love it no end, and the word too isn't, uh, is, isn't, isn't doing you any uh, use in that sense. No, the habit of inauthentically attributing wisecracks, profundities, doggerel and other bits uh, but were never said by the individual. Does this come up a lot in the things that are handed to you? Yes, it? Um, it does. And and it's a copy editor's job to stop it from happening. There are so <laughs> many pithy sayings that have that have found their way into the world and and oh yes, Oscar Wilde said this and, and, and Henry David Thoreau said that and Einstein said this and and, and they didn't say it. And the problem is that you go online and you, you look them up, and there are all these sites that love to, 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 to collect and put out into the world all these, all these wonderful bits of, you know, what I refer to as refrigerator wisdom, and <laughs> they create so much noise that you can't find your way to the truth. So uh, I, I insist it's a, it's a departmental mandate that uh, copy editors verify quotes Particularly the sorts of quotes that show up of uh, show up in epigraphs to books that are that are trying to be inspiring, and to verify that the quote either was or wasn't said by the person uh, the, the author is saying said yeah. it, and and if the author uh, if the person didn't say it, then you have to report back to the author. I'm sorry, uh, this person didn't say it, and you are not going to attribute it to that person. Yeah. And I mean, so, truth is, you know, there there is such a thing. There is such a thing as objective truth. Yeah, surprising in this day and age. <laughs> yeah. So Albert Einstein did not save the facts. Don't fit the theory. Change the facts. Um, if I recall correctly, he said no such thing. Yes, it doesn't even sound like him. I don't know why anyone would thought he had. As, as Oscar Wilde didn't say, "Be yourself. Everybody else is taken," which also doesn't sound like Oscar Wilde. No, it doesn't. Not nearly as good. Yeah. The book is Dreyer's English, Benjamin Dreyer. I've been speaking with Thank you so much, Benjamin, for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. It's been elucidating. Good. <laughs> Benjamin Dreyer, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. I thought I did well. It's been like yes. Dealing with a very tough English teacher. Okay, it was a good attempt. <laughs> Thank you all for listening, watching, whatever you're doing, and we'll see you again here on the Way Note Podcast. We'll be back uh, next week with another one. Oh, yeah. I'm going to speak to his mother next week. Finally got to the commas. No semicolon.